favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And we're going to be talking about camels this week, which is a complete accident that we're doing two arid adapted (laughs) creatures back to back. I promise it wasn't planned that way it just (laughs) happened that way and now that we've talked about tumbleweeds (laughs) i think there's some interesting tie-ins uh to camels and our misconceptions about them but yeah um first is there any news nicole the thing that i want to share is that our newsletter is super awesome we keep getting new subscribers each week which is so lovely and we so appreciate it and let's keep those numbers going up because Rachel puts a ton of work into that thing. I don't do anything with it. Too much work. But Rachel does. And she does a really good job. You can get Grassland news, uh, new information about us as a business, about the podcast, all that fun stuff, all included in an easily digestible email. Well, thanks. And thanks to all of our new subscribers to the podcast. Glad you're here with us. Uh, I'm ready to get into camels, Nicole. Are you prepared for camels? I'm so ready. And you better okay. you better make the tie-in to tumbleweeds, like, very prominent. I'm just saying. Wow, um, it's not going to be prominent. It's <laughs> only because we think of them as existing in the same ecosystems, and they're good at colonizing the same ecosystems. That's it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, it's something. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Well, here's here's what I have to say first about camels is that I'm going to be exposing my own. Uh, ineptitudes when it comes to animal knowledge i i think i knew basically nothing about camels i've never honestly been interested in desert species Mm -hmm. and that's i guess what camels are known for and i just never have found them interesting at all so basically all (laughs) of my residual knowledge about camels came from uh elementary school probably (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we're gonna require some myth busting with this group of animals because i needed the myth busting and so i am sure a lot of you do too but there's some crazy stuff about camels that we're gonna be getting into including their origins where they came from um what makes a camel some interesting real world tie-ins to why taxonomy even matters at all And yeah, so I'm going to jump right into it and tell you that there are only three camels alive today. There is one wild camel species, that's it, and there are two domesticated camel species. Mm. How many camel species have there been in all of history? A lot. Nicole, (laughs) I cannot stress this enough to you. A lot. There have been so many camels, I couldn't possibly... I picked, like, the four most interesting extinct camels to talk about uh, later on because there are way too many. But, yeah, um, they they used to be very prevalent, but now there's only three in existence. And two of them are domesticated, like, completely domesticated the same way a dog is domesticated or guinea pigs are domesticated. So they Uh are not wild animals, which is fascinating. And what really clued me in to this discussion, I don't remember how our camel discussion several weeks ago started, Nicole, (laughs) but we were discussing the fact that I knew absolutely nothing about camel adaptations related to their humps and water retention and stuff. 
we're going to talk about that later. Um, but it also came up, and it was probably because you have done a lot of research on the steppes. Mm-hmm. It came up that the wild Bactrian camel, which again is the only wild camel that exists today, is actually native to the steppes of Central Asia. So although it has desert adaptations and strays into more desert regions of the Gobi Desert, for example, it is a grassland animal. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of set my brain whirling and my gears grinding trying (laughs) to figure out what I didn't know about camels, which apparently is everything. But yeah, the, the concept that camels maybe weren't originally a desert species really got me excited. Before we dive into that prehistoric history, I think we should talk about what the three extant or still existing camels are and uh, lay our groundwork there. Yeah, hit me with those camel facts. All right, let's go. So we define modern camels as members of the genus Camelus. We consider these old world camels, so they only exist in Africa and Asia. And here's what makes a camel a camel. Ready? Okay. They have splayed toes. So unlike ungulates that walk on the tips of their toes and they have that modified nail, aka a hoof, that they are walking on, Mm -hmm. these guys have flat feet and their toes are splayed out to the side. And accompanying that, this isn't really necessarily a camel trait, um, but Modern camels certainly have uh, big pads on their toes, uh-huh. which accentuate those flat feet and really helps them to navigate things like desert sands and other really loose substrates. Okay. Another thing that makes camels camels is their gait. Uh, Nicole, have you ever ridden on a camel? Oh, gosh. Uh, I have, like, several years ago. But yeah, it's not a gentle ride. <laughs> No, not at all. I have ridden on a camel at an attraction um, as a child, and it is incredibly difficult to keep your balance on them. And that's because (laughs) of their super unique gait, uh, which we call a pacing gait. So basically, unlike pretty much every other uh, ungulate-like artiodactyl or um, I'm using a lot of taxonomic names here. I'm so sorry. But unlike other animals that kind of look like camels, um, these guys move both legs on the same side of their body at the same time. So like mm, yeah. both of the legs on their right side will move forward and take a step. Both of the legs on their left side will move forward and take a step. So what this does for them is it allows them to have super long gangly legs that do not (laughs) knock into each other when they're walking. Uh Um, However, it does create a really unstable stride and that awkward rocking motion, which probably has to do with them evolving those splayed toe pads for more stability and things like that. But it is also a longer stride. So that's what makes camels so good at um, being extremely migratory or traveling long distances in caravans in the ancient world um, or mm-hmm. the not so ancient world, <laughs> like even the modern world. I know camels are very used still today. They're, you know, almost all domesticated. So okay. there's a reason for that. And the pacing gait is a huge reason. Um, they're just very efficient at walking long distances just not as fun to ride (laughs) not as not a smooth ride (laughs) yes yes okay now let me describe to you the differences in the three camels 
in a sort of brief way, and I'll get into the wild Bactrian in more detail because, you know, again, only wild camel. But there's basically a couple of two-humped camels, and then there is a single one-humped camel. And when you picture camels, I'm almost positive that the majority of us are going to be picturing the dromedary camel, Mm -hmm. which is Camelus dromedarius. Those animals were domesticated in Africa, and they are a very desert, arid camel. Cool. Yeah, and that's the one-humped. Yes, that's the one-humped camel. Now, the two-humped camels are both native to the steppes of Central Asia, and I have a little bit more information about them just because um, I'm more interested in the ones we have a wild one to look at, I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's been a lot of research about the dromedary's origins. I just didn't go down that particular rabbit hole this for this episode. Uh, but yeah, these these uh, domesticated Bactrian camels. Uh, so they are both confusingly called Bactrian camels. Camelus bactrianus is the domesticated one. Camelus ferris is the wild Bactrian. Um, the domesticated species was domesticated only about 5,000 years ago in Central Asia. And as for the wild Bactrians, there are only about, depending on which resource you're looking at, a thousand to maybe 1,400 of them left out there, period. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad. We'll get into that because uh, there's some really exciting stuff happening with them, which is honestly so exciting that I've saved it for a separate episode. Oh. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, they're the only truly wild species left. Okay, so two more things about camels in general. The first one is that they actually have three chambered stomachs. So that's different from things like ruminants, your cows and sheep and and stuff like that, which have a four-chambered stomach. Mm -hmm. And uh, ruminants and camels are certainly not the same thing. There's a huge evolutionary divide between them that's going to become important later on, which is why I mention it here. And finally, (laughs) modern extant camels, uh, the old world camels, have humps (laughs) and they are thank you they they are very adapted to conserving water to an almost absurd degree and this is where i'm going to expose a little bit of personal idiocy (laughs) which is fine hopefully we all aspire to continue learning and evolving our understanding of the world nicole yeah why why was I a little bit of a camel idiot? <laughs> Please tell you, us. You weren't a camel idiot. You were just uninformed and not even mm. aware that you had been lied to your entire <laughs> life. Like so many people. Yeah. <laughs> Camels do not store water in their humps. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I, I was watching some PBS documentaries and clips about camels um sources in the doobly-doo uh pbs eons has an especially great one about camels but there are people in the comments being like what do you mean people think that the humps store water and i legitimately (laughs) did and then you were like no 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 it's fat deposits yeah 
And I was absolutely convinced that, okay, yes, they are fat deposits, but the fat deposits are meant for water adaptations, right? And Nicole, this is still a weirdly (laughs) common thing that people think about camels. Like, I was looking at some, I don't know, um, organization websites, uh, whether it's like zoos or nature reserves, like places that do work with camels that we're talking mm-hmm. about this stuff and they'll be like yes the camels break down the fat into water and whatever the other byproduct is and and i was absolutely convinced that, that was the case too and for some reason you were like i don't know a camel scholar in this regard <laughs> <laughs> because you were like no i don't think that that's true and so we looked it up and Although water is a byproduct of them metabolizing their fat in the humps, Mm. the process of metabolizing the fat actually consumes more water than is produced as a byproduct. So they are, without a doubt, losing water by metabolizing that fat despite water being produced by that reaction. Yeah, which is so cool because even if... I feel like if people know that, you know, water is not stored in the hump, they still assume that that fat is there to make water for them. But that's just not the case. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, when you look up, like, fat metabolizing, like, it it is producing water. But it just absolutely blew my mind. And then I could not – like, I had a a whole, like, conniption about this situation with camels. (laughs) Like, I could not wrap my brain around the fact – that camel's humps are for food storage the way any other fat deposit in mammals or uh-huh. birds even typically is. Like, I just could not figure that out. Like, why? Why is food the thing that they need and not water? And so let, let me explain to our audience what I have learned <laughs> about camels. Uh, number one, because they live in extremely adverse conditions, food is a big deal for them and that is not an understatement. So they do need the fat reserves in order to survive Mm -hmm. because of harsh conditions that include a reduction in food availability. However, camels absolutely do have some insane adaptations that allow them to conserve water. That is a part of their makeup. They are great at that. It's just that it has nothing to do with the humps. <laughs> so uh, when you see camel's humps deflating, it's because they're in starvation conditions and mm-hmm. they need more food. They are able to guzzle down gallons and gallons of water at a time. The way that camels actually store that water in their body is in their blood, which is fascinating. And this is something that makes camels different, like a really unique species in the animal Mm -hmm. kingdom. Unlike a lot of their counterparts that are not camels, they have really oblong red blood cells. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they can expand to fit an insane amount of water inside those cells themselves. Yeah. So they store all of that excess water in their blood and they're very effective and efficient at doing that. Mm -hmm. Literally. Their red blood cells are ovals because if they were round, they drink so much water at a time that their their blood cells would burst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, they have insane. to be ovals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there, there we go. I think that's pretty much everything, although I should mention that camels also have other adaptations that are common in, in separate desert species for mm-hmm. 
and I keep saying desert species because, you know, those adaptations are for the similar conditions. And the steppes are an arid grassland as well. So it yes. comes in handy whether they're in the Gobi Desert, in the grassland regions, or sand dunes, right? Um, whether it's cold or hot, the adaptations are useful. Um, and and I think the only other interesting thing about the hump is that because a lot of their fat storage is concentrated in a specific area, they are able to have a more unique heat dispersion compared to other large-bodied mammals mm-hmm. that works for them both in arid and or sorry that works for them both in hot environments and cold environments so okay yeah because it's not like they have big ears or a long naked tail to help them cool down like a lot of other mammals would so Mm -hmm. and notice that you're assuming that they're living in hot environments yeah deserts can be cold environments and the deserts in asia often are oh yeah which is why bactrian camels have very uh shaggy wool they They're call so it wolf. fluffy mm-hmm. in the winter in particular. Um, but regardless of which season it is, the fat storage gives them a unique way to disperse their heat mm-hmm. or conserve your heat. <laughs> yeah. So that's camels and their water and hump situation. You're welcome. <laughs> you don't have to admit to anybody that you didn't understand this the way I have. But now you can, you know, seem like a cool kid when people yes. are talking about camels. <laughs> Definitely. Another uh, camel hump fact for you. Oh no. <laughs> it's nothing crazy. The babies are born without humps because they oh. haven't made any fat storage cuz they're babies. <laughs> That's adorable. I know. Thank you for that, Nicole. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. So, what is up with the wild Bactrian camels? What do we know about them? How are they different? And this is actually really freaking crazy, okay? So here is the first thing that you need to know about the wild Bactrians. They're cute. Oh my god, Nicole, no. Yes, they are, but that's not (laughs) the thing. Okay, the thing is, they are not the wild version of the domesticated Bactrian camel. They are not the same species. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, their scientific name is Camelus ferris, uh-huh. indicating they are like a separate species but they are not like feral versions of the bactrian camel that's domesticated in mm-hmm. fact based on dna analyses um their original species diverged 1.1 million years ago Ooh. and the domestic bactrian was domesticated only 5000 years ago so basically the wild camel that was domesticated to become the domesticated version mm-hmm. does not exist anymore. They're not the same species. Okay. Yeah. Which is really confusing because their names do not indicate that. Yeah, not at all. So like I mentioned, um, they do have furry winter coats to survive harsh winters. And because of the sorts of environments they live in, uh, they have actually... <laughs> evolved the ability to drink salt water mm-hmm. and they can drink salt water that's more concentrated than seawater <laughs> this is significant because there is no other mammal including the other bactrian camel that can do this it's insane um so these animals are very migratory they're constantly moving around which we understand that their long gait kind of is a part of 
why that is. Like it's kind of built into them to be that way, to be somewhat nomadic. They will wander into deserts like the Gobi, like I mentioned, but their habitat is arid plains and hills. And in these regions, there's very little water available. So there are frequently, in addition to oases in some of these regions, um, saltwater springs specifically. And so they will frequently drink from those saltwater springs. That's one of their primary water sources in some areas. So much so that poachers will sometimes just plant landmines all around oh, the saltwater springs. <laughs> yeah. To just explode those camels when they come because they're the only thing that goes there to drink water. All right. <laughs> And yeah. what makes them so uniquely adapted to be able to drink this super, super salty water? I don't know. I don't know. I did not come across, I also didn't look very hard, but I did not come across <laughs> any research explaining that phenomenon. Okay. Thank you for admitting that you didn't try that hard. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I was distracted by other things, okay? <laughs> That's totally fair. Uh, um, and it may be that, you know, because we don't have very many of them left, like around a thousand of them total in the world. Maybe they haven't been studied as much, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Somebody look that up and tell us. Um, okay, but here's what's also interesting. And this is going to come up several times. Their main food source is actually shrubs. Mm. So they are browsers, not grazers. And that is important. Uh, in fact, their mouth is exceptionally tough, and this is something that other camels, including in the fossil record, have in common, and is often what paleontologists use to say, like, oh, this is definitely a, ca uh, a camel. <laughs> so not only do they have, like, really tough lips and stuff so they can eat dry, thorny shrubs, they have teeth with canine pairs in both their upper and lower jaws. So they've what? got, like sharp canines that they use to chew up twigs and small branches <laughs> that's so weird usually i know <laughs> at least for me when i think of canines i think of predators like that's mm -hmm. so weird <laughs> and it's a super unique tooth thing that like really sets camels apart <laughs> yeah so yeah they're, they're feeding primarily on not grass basically okay okay which made me mad because some places were like, oh, they just eat grass. And I was like, no! <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, lastly, I want to mention the conservation of these camels. Um, because obviously, as their numbers suggest, they are critically endangered. And conservation is super important. And globally, humans have pretty much decided from, like, every nation that this is the case for the Bactrian camel. Like, we're all, like oh my god, we have to save this camel. Because it's incredibly <laughs> rare, and it's an incredibly unique lineage. Like, it's literally the only wild camel on the planet. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of threats, like, interbreeding with the domestic Bactrian, which, remember, although they are somewhat related, they're not the same species. And this not only dilutes their genetics, but often it can lead to infertile individuals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, they're far enough diverged that sometimes... It just makes them completely infertile to interbreed. Mm -hmm. They're also uh, threatened by hunting for their meat, shooting by farmers, increasing wolf predation, which is interesting because historically wolves used to only prey on like the more sickly ones they could pick off. But because their habitats are becoming much more drier in that ecosystem and food is becoming more limited for the wolves, they are actually preying on these hardy animals more and more. Ooh. Yeah. 
toxic pollution, human encroachment, all of that good stuff. It's a serious good stuff, terrible stuff. <laughs> anyway, it's a serious problem, and there are a lot of efforts to conserve them. And what's really interesting to me personally is that one of their reserves that they have in Central Asia, um, uh, I'm not probably going to pronounce this correctly, Lope Nur Wild Camel National Reserve in China, which was established in like the year 2000, that has become an oasis for the camel (laughs) because back in 1964, it was a restricted military zone and humans were not allowed to enter it. So the camels were able to thrive there, even though it was restricted to humans because they were testing nuclear weapons. Oh, no. All around the camels. <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently the camels were fine, though. They, it didn't appear to have any adverse effects on them, which was really glossed over. And I was like, I'm sorry, can somebody please go back, like back up and explain that again? Yeah. Because I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of like, um, I think even in Chernobyl, where there's so much nuclear radiation, a lot of wildlife is thriving there now, including some yeah. endangered wildlife, despite the radiation, like they're able to survive and reproduce and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's not like that unheard of, but it just fascinated me. Anyway, there's a lot of <laughs> nature reserves for them. And uh, because of their very unique uh lineage and presence on the planet this is something that i'm going to have to talk about in a future episode but they have been proposed to be introduced to a russian preserve called the pleistocene park oh (laughs) which yeah oh yeah i'm just gonna like give you a little tiny like sneak preview about what this is also so that you don't go researching this if you come across it um but it's basically an experiment to work on grassland preservation and combat climate change by creating a park that mimics the more Pleistocene megafauna environments. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. (laughs) I know, right? And they're like, you know what, we should really bring back this camel and introduce it there because it's an example of a really dominant, really important prehistoric animal from that era that thrived in grasslands yeah mm-hmm. that's wild i know <laughs> jurassic I love park it so but much. make it grasslands <laughs> and mammals <laughs> yes grassland mammal jurassic park uh, okay so i'm excited for that but i had to not make myself go down that rabbit hole yes that's fair anyway <laughs> so that's actually a really good tie-in to the next segment of this camel discovery and that is where did camels come from and what role yeah mm, well that's a really good question too yeah it was a joke because i know it was a joke okay (laughs) but that was a huge question that i had in my research that i still don't know i have a satisfying answer to (laughs) where did they go um but they went to some interesting places and i also wanted to know what role grasslands played in this because okay the only wild camel we have is a steppe native so is that normal for camels? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's I have a question for you. Okay. Did you know that there are other survivals of the camel family on the planet? They're not the members, sorry, they're not members of the genus Camelus, mm-hmm. but they are from the camel family tree. 
I mean, I want to say yes, but then you'll ask me, what are they? So I'm just yeah. going to go ahead and say no. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, like, think think about it. Think about it. Uh, it's too hard. To what, if, what if I give you some clues? Okay. First of all, they are grasslands animals, and they did not come from the old world. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Think about it. Do they look like camels? I mean, kind of, but also kind of <laughs> Why? Because they're four-legged? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look into their eyes, you oh. probably see it. They're, they're beautiful long lashes. The pronghorn? No, those those are related to giraffes, Nicole. Okay, well, you said beautiful <laughs> long lashes, and I just immediately pictured a pronghorn. I was like, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here, here, I'm gonna save it since you since you don't know. I'm gonna save that and surprise you later on. Okay, so what? here's what. Just tell yeah. us. You can't do that. I can't. That's rude. Uh, okay, fine. There are two of them, and they are both domesticated the guanaco which was domesticated into the llama and the vicunia which was domesticated into the alpaca both of which still exist both of which have been domesticated in south america and the wild counterparts live in the grasslands in south america (laughs) okay okay see south america is a weird blind spot in like all of my knowledge of anything like animal (laughs) i know they got a lot of possums down there and like (laughs) some really cool birds and that's about it (laughs) yeah well and their prehistoric relationship with other continents is very interesting because they've been very separated for a lot of history from other continents with the exception of north america when there was a great North American or a great American interchange and the continents became connected and suddenly there was a lot of spreading of species Mm -hmm. like the possums. So here's here's what I hope will blow your mind, Nicole. Oh god. (laughs) Camels are North American animals. And their evolution directly relates to the evolution of grassland habitats in North America. Oh, because they ate all the shrubs? <laughs> well, not exactly, but more because <laughs> as the the grasslands that became prairies, which were very grass-dominated with very sh- few shrubs, uh-huh. um, they, they actually had a transition period between more of a rainforested environment, um, which kind of evolved more into a savanna-type environment. And so the trees and shrubs and other woody plants really had a sort of falling out with our continent <laughs> and uh the the camels and their eruption directly tracks with that process okay so the very first probable camel family member that we've all kind of accepted as the first camel was really more of a deer looking dude but he had weird camel teeth um <laughs> and had a three-chambered stomach, probably is called Protylopus, which Tylopus is a reference to the camel family. And it evolved in a rainforest environment. Oh, mm-hmm. fancy. 
I know. And that was in North America again. So in the Eocene, um, camels were still somewhat rare. But at this point in time, like maybe 37 million years ago or something, when we had a lot more wooded grasslands and even short grass prairie in the environment, savannas were quite common. We did have camels. Um, and by this time, they did not walk on toe pads, but they they did have hooves and their toes were splayed. So these things looked a lot more like things that are modern camel dudes. They didn't have a hump, uh-huh. so they probably resembled llamas and alpacas or baby camels, that sort of animal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love this guy's name, Pobrotherium. <laughs> That's a really well-known one from the Eocene. Um, and again, they were still pretty rare, but these guys lived in those wooded grasslands and short grass prairies. And even though the name Poe Brotherium means grass-eating beast, it definitely didn't eat grass. <laughs> it was, um, at the very least, a mixed feeder where grass might have played a minimal role in the diet, but was probably an exclusive browser. All of their adaptations point to them being primarily browsers that just do not eat grass. Okay. Question yeah. for you, real quick. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I've been thinking about this for like 30 minutes now, and I wasn't going to ask it, but it has to be asked. Okay, please do. How long is a camel tongue? Because <laughs> oh a God. lot of <laughs> a lot of browsers, hear me out, have very uh-huh. long tongues. So I'm just curious. I don't know, but I do know our modern camels have very adapted lips for feeding. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that they're primarily using their lips to, to feed and their canines okay. to pull leaves and stuff like that. So I I didn't I don't know that information, Nicole. I'm very I sorry. I'm gonna Google it. Okay, please do. <laughs> <laughs> uh they they're certainly not um giraffes in terms of like having insane yeah. tongues. But oh. they might be. What? <laughs> I found the first thing that came up, I searched, how long is a camel tongue? The first result is a scientific article called Gross Anatomy of the Tongue of a Camel. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, Amazing. Apparently it is muscular and spatula shaped, comprised of three parts. And it's 41 centimeters long. Okay. So I don't know how long that is rough in like relation to inches. a camel's mouth. That's so long. <laughs> how long does it stick out of its mouth though? Camels are huge. They have big mouths. Uh, Giraffes have big mouths too. Yeah, but I just want to know how long it sticks out of its tongue. I'm- long what? enough to pick their own boogers, which is kind of, uh. <laughs> that's long. That's That's my reference for a long tongue. Okay. Yeah. We'll accept it. Camels have long tongues. Oh, oh, okay, oh, never mind. I'm so sorry. I got distracted. <laughs> I forgot that male camels have that weird thing that they blow up and they like flop their tongue around whenever they're trying to attract a mate. <laughs> oh my I God. forgot that was a thing. <laughs> Don't search camel tongue. It's very disturbing. Search camel tongue for sure. I'm going to be honest. I was so focused on like my ecological questions Uh with camels that I did not spend a lot of time learning about (laughs) things like that. (laughs) Their tongue mating display. That is news to me. It has a special name. 
Oh, no. What is the name? I don't remember. I wrote it down somewhere because I wanted to disturb you with it, but I forgot. <laughs> uh, I'm so disappointed. That's so rude. There, wait. Oh, okay. It's called a doula. So it's often, like, oh. mistaken for the tongue, but it's, um, it's like their palate, like, the top of their mouth. Oh. They, like, inflate it and flop it around and make, like, soft weird... Palate? I think so. And, like, flop it around and make grunting noises. It's all very disturbing. Camels are fascinating but very alarming creatures. <laughs> they really are. Okay. Um... <sighs> Yeah, there's one species of pro- poprotherium I wanted to mention because, like, some of them were abundant in certain regions. Um, this one is described, it's poprotherium wilsoni, described as a gazelle camel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and it was pretty abundant in places like Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Yeah. But the Miocene is when it gets very interesting because in the Miocene, that's when the landscape really changed into a grassy, open landscape. And this is what we call the Camelid Explosion. PBS Eons has a great uh, documentary on this (laughs) on YouTube, very brief as well. Um, But this is where we had peak camel diversity all in North America, and they're so common and so diverse that they're actually one of the most common herbivore fossils in Miocene fossil beds in North America. Wow. Yeah. I I did pick out uh, two of them in particular that I needed to share with you. The first one is Ape camelis, which... I think is a great illustration of just how diverse camels became at this time. Often these camels had uh, humps. They often had those big padded feet that are splayed toes, like very modern camel-like in a lot of these cases. Ape camelus was a giraffe-like camel. Oh. Yeah, so in North American grasslands or savannas, um, and these guys would have been common on the savannas, but again, keep in mind, this is a very open landscape at this point in time, so they probably had to travel long distances in between trees on the Miocene savannas of North America, and that's where their camel stride and their camel (laughs) toes came in really handy because they could wander all over the place to use their elongated uh giraffe-like necks searching for leaves and it's like so obvious that they are adapted the same way as giraffes that we know exactly what their ecosystem role was and it was pretty identical to giraffes in africa um their cervical vertebrae were lengthened just like a giraffe it's just that they were camels and had camel toe pads and probably a camel gait and they lived tongues on our prairies, yeah, probably <laughs> probably had long tongues. Um, that doesn't fossilize as well, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The other one I wanted to mention is a super, super common North American camel. Na- uh, it actually has a common name. We call it the Pleistocene Western Camel. Its scientific name is Camelops hesternus, and it survived until as recently as like 13,000 years ago. So that's how recently 
this camel explosion stretched. Um, camels were hanging on in North America, in the United States and Canada until like 13,000 years ago, which wow. means um, they actually encountered groups of people. Uh, we have found hunted bones that were hunted by humans and bones that were butchered by humans of this species. Wow. Yeah. And and they were super common uh, south of the ice sheets that existed at that period of time. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Um, because in 2008, scientists found fossils of C. hesternis in the Yukon. <laughs> like way way up in the tip of canada in the arctic and not only is it the arctic today but when it existed at that time period um <laughs> it was still arctic <laughs> so this this species was able to thrive in arctic conditions and i think this points out what made camels so incredible at what they do their humps their strides and their feet allowed them to survive well in a lot of environments including the arctic think of those adaptations that allow them to walk on sand the same thing lets them walk on snow you know so these are really really amazing uh colonizers <laughs> they're really good at spreading and and finding new environments yeah um so this this guy looked a little bit more like an alpaca and you know paleontologists are really reliant on comparing morphology of bones because that's really all they can do and so based on that which is typical for paleontology um they assumed it was on the llama side of the family tree rather than the modern camel side however these bones in the yukon that they are uncovering or that they did uncover some were preserved in permafrost, right? Ooh, Which means yeah. they were able to take ancient DNA from it and get genon gen mm. hmm? <laughs> gen get genomic. That was a hard word to say for some reason. Information from it. So testing its DNA, it turns out that this guy was definitely more related to modern camels, despite looking more like a giraffe or not a giraffe. Goodness, a llama or alpaca. Okay. Huh. Yeah, and it did have a hump. Oh, but nice. yeah. <laughs> so, so really, really interesting stuff. Um, Camelops hesternus is another good illustration of what probably was the downfall of camels. Based on the teeth, scientists think it was probably a metabrowser, so it ate both grass and woody brows. They were present up in the Yukon during an interglacial warm period, the last one, in fact. Um, and then got wiped from the Arctic as the climate grew colder about 75,000 to 80,000 years ago. And that wiped out their brows, which we think is what wiped them out from that region. And actually, that's the primary theory for why camels went extinct in North America. As our grasslands became much more of the prairie we know today, where there really wasn't historically a lot of woody plants and it is primarily grasses as far as the eye can see, that kind of habitat just was not suitable for camels, which required shrubs and other forms of browse. And we think that that's probably what wiped them out. Okay. 
And and keep in mind, listener, that grasslands come in all shapes and sizes. You know, if you live in the U.S. and you're more familiar with our prairies, with the oceans of grass kind of landscape, there's a lot of grasslands that don't look anything like that. They have woody brows, they have trees, and can have quite a lot of trees and are still considered grasslands. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so as the North American grasslands became modern prairies, um, camels finally went extinct in North America about eight to 10,000 years ago, okay. alongside humans, um, human groups that still exist today, for the record. So yeah, that is the story of camels. But obviously, with regards to our modern camels, um, they don't exist in the place they originated anymore. But because they're so good at surviving in different landscapes, they were able to spread out of the continent before prairies wiped out their favorite grassland ecosystem. And so when um, the Bering Strait land bridge uh, made Alaska stretch over to Russia and Asia, Mm -hmm. that allowed camels to spread and colonize the old world. Mm. And so that's why we call our modern camels old world camels. And people for a long time thought that they originated from there, that that's where their home was. But no, they're just the camels that happened to escape North America and they live on today. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And on the other side of things, when the two American continents connected, some camels escaped and explored South America which gave rise to our lineages of the other members of the camel family today, the uh, vicuñas and guanacos, mm-hmm. which were then domesticated. And I don't know, I find the end of the camel story a little bit frustrating and sad because the only ones that appear to have survived all this time are the ones that humans found useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't really know... You know, I I know why in North America, camels went extinct. I don't really know why it is that modern camels only exist because they were useful to humans, except for, you know, that one species. Mm -hmm. Because they used to be incredibly diverse. And it's certainly not the case that there was a very one-way tract for things like vicuñas and guanacos in South America, or, you know, the one track of, I mean, obviously in, in Asia those camels were able to spread into Africa and evolve into things like whatever gave rise to the dromedaries. And so there's a lot of evolution happening all over the place where these camels have been. And I just don't, I don't have the full picture of how we went from them spreading into these continents to really only being the human affiliated ones left. Yeah. And it's kind of disappointing But I think it's also a good highlight for why the wild Bactrian is considered so important to biologists across the planet. Because it's the only wild remnant of what once was a thriving and diverse group of animals that were so prevalent even in North America, where they don't even exist anymore, that they were one of the most common herbivores found in some time periods. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, kind of an unsatisfying conclusion, but I I hope that understanding that history of camels 
I mean, it certainly changed my perspective of camels. And suddenly I care about camels more than I have literally <laughs> any other time in my life. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, it makes me excited for the future of uh, um, Bactrian conservation. Yeah, definitely. Do we... This is kind of random, but do we know if some of the more ancient species had two humps? Or is it really only the Bactrian that has oh. the two humps? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm pretty sure that there were other two-humped camels that didn't live in Asia. So, like, mm-hmm. in North America, that evolved. Um there's actually a really cool website, one of those um, resources for prehistoric recreations of animals. I'll send mm-hmm. you a link and I'll definitely put it in our show notes. Um, there is some information there and they kind of cite where those information resources come from. But really, I think it's just a great way to look at what some of these camels looked like. Ooh, I hate yeah. to enter. Um, so that's Camelops uh, Hesternus. Which, okay, if you look at his little face, you can see why, based on his morphology, he looks a lot more like a llama despite having a little hump. Oh. He's cute. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, scrolling down, I mean, you'll see a lot of other camels. There's the Apicamelus giraffe-looking dude, um, Camelus nobloki, which is a two-humped camel. And certainly there's several camels that didn't evolve humps and that lived at the same time as humped camels. Sure. So, yeah, remember evolution is not a linear thing. I'm talking to listeners, not you, Nicole. You get this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's a branching effect. And so there were many, many camels alive at the same period of time that took different paths evolutionarily. And so, you know, there are more alpaca deer-like camels living at the same time as hump camels. Okay. <laughs> Titanotelopsis, Nebraskansis, something like that. (laughs) He is a thick boy. This boy beefy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's there's some incredible, huge camels. Um, I just love it so much. Paracamelus (laughs) is a really fun one, too, in my personal opinion. There's just, there's so many that you you cannot talk about all of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. My favorite um, paleontological recreations are the ones where there's, like, a a modern person in a t-shirt standing next to them. Yes. (laughs) But, like, it really gives you a good sense of scale, and Uh uh, I love it. (laughs) Um, If you would permit me, I do have, like, a random little diatribe about ruminants that I could go on that I found to be interesting. Okay. Um, Can can I give you one last camel fact? absolutely (laughs) okay apparently camels they they like we like i said earlier they make a ton of really weird noises and this rumbling growl noise that they use uh was actually a noise that was incorporated into the voice of chewbacca in the star wars (laughs) franchise (laughs) oh that's great that is really good to know Uh, that's it i just i had that written down i needed to it doesn't fit in with the conversation anywhere but i just needed that to be known i'm so glad to know this thank you (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) Uh, okay um so i had a little bit of frustration while i was doing this research because 
I, I was finding a lot of conflicting information in some sources, even things like Animal Diversity Web, which I normally consider to be quite uh, a reliable resource. Yeah. About Bactrians. And part of the problem is that people in, in some cases are still referring to wild and domestic Bactrians as if they are the same species with, mm-hmm. you know, grouping them in together with characteristics that shouldn't be grouped together. And so that's probably part of the problem. But regardless, um, there were a lot of sources calling camels ruminants and stating even that wild Bactrians primarily eat grass and stuff, which, while they certainly do eat grass, is absolutely not true. Like, they're not primarily grazers, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out in scientific literature to make sure that this was true. Sure. The last thing I wanted to do, yeah, was give <laughs> false information to people about this. Just start um, crapping on everybody's hard work and just have no proof to back it up. <laughs> exactly. Well, and there's like some big implications for the stuff we just talked about, about, you know, the extinction of camels globally. Yeah, like yeah. if wild Bactrians are ruminants and do primarily eat grass, is that why they survived? But also shrubs still exist all over the planet so that shouldn't really you know what i mean i don't know but the fact that they are three-chambered stomached non-ruminants seem to be very important to the evolutionary history of these animals and so i ended up on the veterinary side of scientific research oh (laughs) to solve this problem yeah there was um an article published in a veterinary journal titled Camels are not ruminants. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm sold. Tell me more. Um, but she or he, I don't know who the author is off the top of my head. I will link this paper. Uh, the The author stated that camelids are not ruminants taxonomically, physiologically, or behaviorally, which was a more thorough stance than I had seen anybody take. And it turns out that the reason for this publication um, was to do with veterinary issues, disease issues, and mostly regulations from political leaders that don't understand biology (laughs) and (laughs) were using their misinformation, um, which, you know, I can't blame them because I thought camel humps were full of water. Uh, or for water. So, yeah. I mean, there's lots of information, just misinformation out there. Um, but this was an important thing for this veterinarian or this veterinary scientist to clear up. Um, mm-hmm. Because in Canada, there were some disease concerns regarding ruminants. Um, and regulations were put into place that had adverse effects on camels in the region and were considered inappropriate by these researchers. Uh, Because apparently a lot of regulatory issues regarding things like camels disregard actual camelid disease research. And lawmakers, at least in this case, when asked, like, how did you decide that this is how you should make these regulations that affect all of these animals? They were like, well, the encyclopedia definition of ruminants is this. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And this is why I think taxonomy and definitions are incredibly important because it's not semantic, it's not pedantic, it's not just, you know, fun, I don't know, boxing things into different categories. Like, it has really serious implications to understand something's taxonomy and what a word like ruminant means. And so from a 
scientific and veterinary standpoint, uh, the encyclopedia definition of ruminant and the category of ruminants that lawmakers are often trying to regulate are not the same thing. Um, for example, rumination is described as foregut fermentation, complex multi-compartmentalized stomachs, that was a mouthful, food regurgitation and rechewing. But those kinds of like actions are not things that only ruminants do. Like hippopotamuses do that. Colobus monkeys do those things. Kangaroos and peccaries do. Like they are not ruminants and should not be regulated as ruminants. And same thing for camels. You know, they do have the ability to do some rumination, but they are not ruminants. And so there are some similarities in the way that camels and ruminants like cows and sheep are able to digest things. But this is considered more parallel evolution where it's like, hey, this turned out to be really helpful for them. And uh, even USDA, APHIS, like Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services, mm-hmm. tr- is trying to classify camel camelids as ruminants because and here's a quote from them regardless of their taxonomic classification camelids meet the definition of ruminants and are regulated as ruminants based on their susceptibility to ruminant diseases such as foot and mouth disease tuberculosis brucellosis jones disease etc and this is a very fundamental misunderstanding of the taxonomy of camels and ruminants. Because while those things are true, and there are diseases that ruminants and camelids all can acquire, if you were to take a careful look at the literature, like this scientist did, there's like tables upon tables analyzing these diseases and stuff. Um, It's an absolute myth that llamas, alpacas, and camels are susceptible to all ruminant diseases. In fact, they are really, really resistant to a lot of the ruminant diseases that people are super concerned about and don't even contract (laughs) some of those diseases and have their own unique diseases that ruminants like cattle, sheep, and goats cannot acquire. So there's really no reason to say that these are the same groups of animals because of their digestion, because they simply are not, they cannot or should not be regulated the same. Mm-hmm. And um, the conclusion of this paper was camels are not a threat to the livestock industry because <laughs> they're not the same thing as this livestock you're concerned about. Uh-huh. I I just really appreciated this real world consequence of misunderstanding taxonomy and definitions of animals. And lawmakers need to listen to scientists when they're trying to explain that. (laughs) Yes. Don't they? That is so true. (laughs) Gosh. No, that that is really interesting. And it's cool to see that real world story. Like, yeah. Yeah. So if you see somebody publishing an article about camels and they're like, oh, yeah, they're ruminants. They can eat uh, leaves and grass and they regurgitate their cud and stuff and chew it up. So therefore, they're the same thing. No. (laughs) <laughs> they're not stop it <laughs> like, not the that's, same <laughs> that's the hot take we let her, we are leaving this with not like the lack of water <laughs> in their humps just like they are not ruminants <laughs> it's an important real world application of taxonomy okay nicole <laughs> oh shoot i love it Thank well you that's so all much. i have you're so welcome <laughs> that was a great note to end on 
Anyway, uh, the real takeaway is that camels are wild. Are yes, ca- camels are little grasslanders, and the prairies <laughs> extincted them. Extincted them. Yep. Mm-hmm. And possibly people too. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> the end. Okay, fantastic. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah. Okay, bye. That's the end of the episode. No, okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, thanks, Rachel. That was great. I'm so happy that you like camels now. They are fascinating and terrifying and wonderful and have too many teeth. And I think I respect them more, but I don't know if it's maybe a little bit of fear. But that's okay. <laughs> Same thing. And thank you, listener, for listening to The Best Biome. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend and consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a lot. Give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter, send us some fan mail, or leave us a voice message, or even text us. And we will see you next week. See you next week! <laughs> Hopefully we're not doing more desert things. <laughs> okay, bye. Well, deserts and grasslands have a lot in common, you know? They do. And I think it's grassland erasure to keep <laughs> saying all of these arid grassland adapted animals strictly live in the desert. Because yes. that is taking away from the coolness and the uniqueness of truly desert animals. <laughs> like the dromedary, right. probably. But yes. <laughs> comfortable calling the dromedary a desert animal yeah i think that that's probably true and i think that maybe that's where a lot of the misconceptions about camels as a whole come from because dromedaries are the one that people are familiar with they're the ones that are always in zoos and parks and things like that so mm-hmm. and they're the ones always pictured when they're like camels have humps and yes store water in it <laughs> yes yeah Anyway, let's celebrate how deserty the dromedary is because that makes it different from every other camel that's ever existed. <laughs> yes, Probably. yes. Okay. Probably. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Camels are a mystery. Yeah, there's too many of them to lump them all together. That's fair. But the vast majority of them. Grassland. <laughs> okay, that's all. I okay. leave you now. I stop okay, recording. Bye. bye. Um, I just, I just wanted to say something real quick. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Ooh, that was some spicy Dr. Pepper.